and show us what to want. We love you. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. The name that stands above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. Am I on? Ooh, welcome to Greenhouse. Uh, if you are regular here, you're used to this, but we do th things a little bit differently here. Uh, if you're new, uh, you might come on some kind of basis and find just about anybody up here speaking. And uh, today I'm just, I'm one of those somebodies. My name is Ron Brown. I'm on the leadership team here at Greenhouse. And uh, I am pleased and privileged to be the one bringing the message today. Uh, we're going to start looking at something. You know, if we really think about how we are as a people, as a society, we're, we're pretty bent on improving ourselves. It's not a bad thing. You know, we want to better ourselves in our, in our occupation, in our lives, in a variety of ways. And it's interesting the amount of self-help books that are available just for this purpose. I looked on Amazon. Do you have any idea how many self-help titles there are, are, are on Amazon? Me neither. I tried to count. I had to give, I had to give up. It's way too many on a wide variety of topics. So I tried to narrow my search down a little bit, and I looked on Christian Book Distributors. It's a, a site that has all kinds of Christian resources, Bibles, and so on and so forth. And, and on that, Christian-related topics alone, they have 42,000 titles. So it's pretty interesting. It just shows how pretty evident that, that we are on approving ourselves, even as Christians. So with that said, several weeks ago, Brian sent out kind of a, a, an informal survey to the various house churches and groups that, that are affiliated here with a Greenhouse. And he asked what they would most like for us to teach in this sermon context. And although the opinions were, were varied and expressed in many different ways, the general number one topic was how can we live a more fully surrendered life? Pretty easy topic. Uh, probably one that we don't talk about enough. But I will have to say as one of the leadership team, on behalf of the others, I'm really pleased that folks would be interested enough and express that, you know, I, I really need to have a more surrendered life. And how do I do that? So here we go. Uh, you know, a, a, as part of this sermon series that we're really kind of kicking off today, it'll go through the end of the year. We're going to address these topics here. How do we live a more fully surrendered life? And it's really under the, the topic of surrender, submission, and sacrifice. So we're look, we'll look as we go on to more specific areas how that looks like, but we'll see how intertwined those two, those three things are. They're almost inseparable in that. But we'll always look to Jesus as our example. So to start this series, I'm going to dive into what is probably the most crucial, important, and overarching issue that, that faces all Christians, always has, and always will, surrendering our will. 
And as I said earlier, we're going to look to Scripture to see how Jesus did this. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 14. This story is in all four of the Gospels. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm sure that you're fairly familiar with that. So let's read. We're going to be reading in, uh, in uh, Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. Mark. Mark. And the word of the Lord reads this way. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we're so grateful for the gift of Jesus. We're so grateful for the cross and all that that has meant for us, not only for today, but going forward as well, and all your promises are true in that, Lord. Lord, we we as still mere humans, not perfect in all of our ways, are desperately in need of your guidance and your example. Lord, will you fill our hearts with the Holy Spirit so we could see this and drive us into your truth that way we may walk from this day forward in a more fully surrendered life. Lord, we love you and we pray in that special, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. So let's see how we get to this point. We're, you, we're obviously in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the end of Jesus' life. And we, we have to look and see what does is, what is all transpire. Um, we have this entire, as we've been going through this series since the beginning of the year, we look at God having this plan of redemption from creation to restoration. And Jesus is following this plan in so much as he came at just the right time. 
He came, became a man. He entered time and the material world, and he became fully man and fully God at the same time. That's difficult for us to really try and embrace, but, but it's true. He spent three and a half years with these fellows in his ministry. He called these disciples to come alongside him, and he walked through them, taught them, healed people, preached his word, preached, the, preached about salvation and the gospel you to, to many, many people. You know, at this point right here is the end of his ministry. Just, just prior to this in the evening, he had celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Judas has left to betray him. He celebrates the Lord's Supper. He institutes the Lord's Supper with the disciples that are left. When they finish that, he, they, they all go and Jesus leads them out to the Mount of Olives, which was an area just to the eastern side of Jerusalem. And, and I don't know if it's really a mountain or not, but it's a pretty big hill, hill where they had olive groves. And on their way out to that, he's telling them that you'll all leave me. Well, they can't really believe that, and they deny that that's going to happen. But it does. Then he leads them on into this garden called Gethesnemi. I can't hardly pronounce it. And that really means olive press. This is where they would take the olive crops there and press them for the olive oil. And so he goes to prayer. He leads these guys and he said, now, now sit, here, sit here while I pray. And he tells Peter, John, and James, remain here and watch. And he goes to pray. Now the normal position of prayer for a Jew at that time would be standing with his eyes and his hands raised towards heaven, he would pray out loud. But we see Jesus fall to the ground in anguish. And this is a real prayer. And he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What's that cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. Every sinner from this point here has sinned and owes a debt to God, and that debt's their death. That debt is their eternal separation from God. And although Jesus understood this, and he was resolved to do this in his humanness, he was in agony. In his divine nature, he was also in agony because he knew that through this on the cross, he was going to suffer a separation from God that had never happened before. We don't understand what that type of relationship was, but he was going to lose it for at least a short period of time. You know, the disciples really didn't believe this. They really didn't understand it. But Jesus said in John 12, he said, Before this hour, I have come. He was going to the cross because he had a resolve that he was going to do it. And we look at 
why did he do this? And really his primary reason because he was devoted to his father. He loved God and he was going to please him because it was part of this plan. It was going to happen right here. And he was going to walk through that. So he resolved and he said, not what I will, but what you will. Now, I don't say that to lessen at all his love for us, his love for the, for the, for the people that he, that he went through this cross. I want to read something to you that I found, and it's an, it's an, old, it's an old Puritan guy, so I'm going to try to make it into more modern-day English. And this is a hypothetical situation. It's a conversation between God and his son. And it kind of explains this a little bit as it, as it relates to us. And this is the father talking. He says, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now are open to my justice. Now, that justice demands satisfaction for them and will satisfy itself only in eternal ruin. What shall be done for these souls? The son responds, he says, Oh, my father, such is my love too and pity for them. Rather that they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their debt. Bring in all, they, all thy bills that I may see what, what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may, may be no after reckoning with them. At my hand you shall require it. I rather choose to suffer thy wrath then they should suffer for it. Upon me, my father, upon me, be all their debt. The father again, but my son, if you undertake this for them, you must reckon to pay every last cent. Expect no abatement. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son responds, he said, I'm content with that, Father, let it be so. Charge it all to me. I'm able to take it. And though it proved to be a kind of undoing of me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Jesus wanted to please his Father, absolutely. But he also did this out of love for us. John Stott, an, an old deceased Englishman who wrote in his book, Between Two Worlds, he said, the father gave the son, but it's equally true that the son gave himself. So we can see through this how Jesus surrendered himself because of this plan. Because of this plan written from eternity past as God was going to gather those children to himself to spend an eternity, he had to die. He had to take the punishment. And he chose to do it. Because it pleased his father. So we look at that and we say, well, how do we live more fully surrendered lives? Uh, 
here's where it gets hard. You know, we as the church, the church universal has theologies that are all over the place. Probably in this room, it's all over the place, but we all have a theology. We all do. I'm going to use two little examples. We have one fellow who understands that, that Jesus opened a way for him to get to heaven. And he said, now it's up to me to walk through that door. It's up to me to, to, through my good works and whatever, to hold that door open or to claw my way or climb my way into that eternity. Then there's another fellow all the way on the opposite side of that. He says, I've been saved by grace. It really doesn't matter what I do. Matter of fact, I'll probably just do anything because Jesus will forgive me. The one thing that's in common with both of those people is the answer to the question, who are they doing it for? It's me. In a matter of respect, I'm doing it for me. We don't understand that. We don't necessarily see it that way, and I know there's a lot of other different opinions on that, but, but to some degree, we do things so much for ourselves. I was enlightened earlier on in my Christian walk by an author by the name of Dallas Willard when he, in a book that he wrote called The Great Omission, where he said, we've kind of organized churches so that we really want to have get somebody to come into church. We want them to say some words, make a profession of faith. We want to get them wet somehow, and then we just give them a seat. There's no discipleship, no walking through that. And in many respects, we've come to dumb down church, so that's all it is. Maybe that's what we really think. Maybe we think that if I can get, get Timmy to, to make a profession of faith and, and uh, get him baptized, he can have a seat. It doesn't matter. You know, we're just all going to sit here and wait for heaven. We made it very easy to embrace our sins, to get him out and play with them, not really take it seriously what God died for on the cross. Uh, I was having a, I meet with a, a godly brother of mine and I have for a long time. A couple of weeks ago, we were having a conversation and we were praising God for the, for the work that he's recently done in this fellow's life and, and how he's filled him with so much so much knowledge, which is, you know, I kind of like that. I'm a theology nerd just like he is. And so we're walking through this. And he's praying kind of, now what? He says, Lord, now what you've done, you've done with all this with, you've given me all of this knowledge. What do you want me to do? And out of my mouth comes the question, do you pray that with a heart that's willing to do whatever he says before you even pray? And we both sat there in silence. Because all too, all too often, that's who we are. We can pray things. We can ask him for guidance. But we don't go into a heart that's willing to do it when he even says it. We're not willing. It's too easy for us to have and desire a Savior and not desire a Lord and somehow think that is a walk of faith. So let's start. A surrendered life 
is a devoted life. Jesus said, follow me. Do we really understand what a discipleship process is? You have a rabbi, disciples, teacher, students. They would go through this process, and I'm sure a lot of you folks know this, they would go through this process where the rabbi would pick whatever number of folks that he wanted to pick that showed promise, and they would live with him. They would walk with him. They would eat with him. They stayed with him 24 hours a day. They saw actually everything that he did. They saw how he reacted in every situation. They saw how he prayed. They saw his devotional life. So that at the end of, they said they walked so closely that the dust from his shoes would just cover them. At the end, and the goal of that, at the end of it, was that they would be like him when it was done. Didn't violate their personalities, but they would be like him. Jesus calls us to the same thing. Be like me. And then he says, go. It's a great commission. Go make more disciples. Go make more disciples. Here at Greenhouse, we're really big on that. We somehow, through the course of church history, have kind of lost touch with that to some degree. And some of the issues we end up doing, we make a disciple of me and not a disciple of Jesus because we don't seek to be like him. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's another word for growing in holiness, being like Jesus. That's God's will for our lives. Not just our happiness, but for us to be like Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Is that it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so no one can boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see, Christian, do you see yourself part of his plan? If he could write this out on a scroll, these are wonderful things that Lindsay did such a great job, and these are wonderful things. If you could have, if it was written down, could you get a, a magnifying glass and see yourself written into this story? Brian, the date you were celebrating, he wrote you into his story. Do we see ourselves a part of his plan? Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. What's God trying to do here? What, what, what's, what, what's, he, what's he trying to do here? He's gathering a people to himself, an eternal family to himself, that are all going to be given new bodies, sinless bodies, and going to spend an eternity with him. That's our purpose. Number two, a surrendered life is an obedient life. We've read in the scriptures, Jesus said, pick up your cross and die. Pick up your cross and follow me. A lot of hard stuff that he talked about, that our lives would be about living in this world. 
sacrifice, shame, humiliation, denying yourself. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Dying to ourselves, dying to our desires, not ignoring what he has to say, but doing it. Do you have a relationship with Jesus where you can pour out your heart? How's your prayer life? Do you have a relationship close, so close enough like Christ that you could say, man, I really don't want to do this. This is hard, but I'm going to do it. He calls us to that. He's there and available for us in that. And it's hard because our sin is always out there. Satan is always out there trying to distract us. You know, you don't have any time for this. You, you got to do this. You got to do this. Your life is about this. Your life is about that. He's always out there luring us with different temptations so that we won't do this. 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ, Christ and take captive every thought. Satan puts ideas in our head. That's about our ideas. But we need to take every thought captive. How do we do that? We learn who Jesus is. How do we do that? We look at the Bible. We pray. We desire to please him. Jonathan Edwards, maybe this is an idea. I, I think it's a great idea. Jonathan Edwards, an old uh, 1800s pastor, theologian, ended up being uh, the president of Yale after he actually got fired from his church from being obedient to the Bible. Figure that out. He had come up with a list of resolutions for himself because he knew himself. A list of 70 resolutions. Everyone starts with I resolve. You can Google this, but here's number 56. I resolve never to give over to or in the least slacken my fight with my own corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. He realizes, as we all should, our sinful nature and what we're prone to do, but he's honest with himself. That's something we really don't like to do is really be honest exactly with ourselves. Does God expect perfection? We know we're not going to be perfect in this world. He knows we're not going to be perfect. That's why he's, Jesus is still interceding on our behalf right now. This is the Apostle Paul, probably the, the greatest missionary, the greatest church planner, the greatest pastor, the greatest evangelist that we've ever known. And this is him writing about himself. Romans 7.15, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not what I want, but the very thing I do I hate. Now if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is my in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what, the good that I want, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep doing. Now, if I, he goes on and says, now if I don't do what I want, he keeps you talking about this. He says, 
but I see my members waging war against the law of my mind and making, making me captive to the sin that dwells in my members. He finishes up and says, what a wretched man am I? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks to be to God through Jesus Christ. He's agonizing over his own sin and looking forward to that day that he will not be afflicted with it. The same is true for us. But do we really agonize over our sin? It's easy for us to say, well, I, you know, I sin every day. And that's true, but we almost kind of are flipping about it. God's not flipping about it. The third and last thing, a surrendered life is a joyful life. Hebrews 12 talks about Jesus at the cross, and it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? Yes, it was our redemption. Yes, it was going to be seated with the right hand of God. But his joy was he was going to please the Father. Do you find joy in pleasing Jesus? Nehemiah 8 says, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's how we can walk this walk. We're trying to please him. He empowers us to walk it. You know, do we have a prayer life enough that we can go to him and say, I, I, I don't understand this. I need you to help me. Do we have a prayer life enough that we're close enough relationship with him that we can say, I really don't want to do this. But I know it pleases you to do it. I'm going to wrap up with a couple of things. You know, I, I know I've kind of beaten this up here. But here's one last thing. Do you think Jesus has left you because you fail him in so many ways? Let's take a look at these guys in this picture here. The scripture we've talked about. The other 11 because... Judas has left. Why did he even have them with him? Did he need them to accomplish this? Probably not really. But he said, watch. Watch and pray. As we see, and we know through history, these guys all denied him. They left. Peter tried to stop the whole thing when he hacked off a guy's ear and, you know, Jesus told him to stop and but less than two months later, after this, we see Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking probably one of the greatest gospel sermons we've ever heard. He's a different man. Jesus knew this. He was preparing them for the martyrdom that they would end up dying. They saw how he died not denying the Lord, but willingly and gladly serving him. And each one of these guys, except for John, who they tried to boil in oil and it wasn't successful because he was preaching the gospel, it didn't happen. So he was prepared these guys. So here, even at the cross, in all this agony, Jesus is teaching them. He didn't forget about him. He could have just as easily said, you know, 
guys, this has been great. You know, I've enjoyed the relationship. Thanks for the memories. <clears throat> I'm probably going to start with the new crew of guys. You guys have really goofed this up. But he didn't do it. In this same passage, he says uh, in, in verse 28, but after I'm raised, ra- after I'm raised up, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. He's still pulling them in. He hasn't kicked them out. You know, if you've goofed this life up of faith, which I'll guarantee you if you have, he's still there. He's still there. So a couple of things to think about. Be who you are, where you are, always remembering who you are. Okay? Part of this plan right here, not everybody is going to be a hero and have their name in light someplace. You may just be a man or a woman or a dad or a mom with a couple of kids and you know, gee whiz, if you've got a kids, you've got to build a discipleship program. So, you know, do we go about our lives in our, you know, in our family lives, in our friendship, in, amongst the brethren, in our workplaces, trying to be somebody who's trying to be like Jesus? Trying to show other people somebody who's trying to be like Jesus. Surrendering your will is a lifelong series of these Gethsemane moments where Jesus molds us for today's lives and purposes and for those we have yet to see. He has a future for us. He has a walk. We all have a purpose. We all have a purpose in him gathering people unto himself. And it pleases the Father when we do that. So I'm going to close with this small passage from Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation of fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is glorified and pleased when we walk according to his will. He knows we're going to fail. We'll spend a lifetime of falling to our knees, repenting and getting back up again. He expects us. But one day, just as Paul said, We'll be tickled to death that we will not be afflicted with this sin. And we'll enjoy eternity with all the brothers and sisters that he's brought to himself. Those are just some small snippets of how to live a more fully surrendered life. And it's a message for all of us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we... uh, We admit so freely how often we fail this, how often we're more concerned with pleasing ourselves than pleasing you, how often and how easy it is to hear your words and ignore them, much less just completely deny them. Lord, we we pray that you will humble us day after day as this life is now not our own, but it's yours. It's yours to have. It's yours to do what you want to with us. Lord, you are there waiting and willing for that relationship with us. Please, 
drive our hearts closer in that relationship with you. Lord, we love you. We sure thank you for Jesus and his example. And it's in his glorious name we pray. Amen.